0: Hello and welcome back to the latest. We are back in London, and where are we, Izzy? What are we doing?
1: We are in the in Parliament right now, and uh, we're here to interview. An MP, we're here with Michael Fabricant. So how are you? how's your day going so far? Oh,
2: it's been a very fraught day because you've been having to wait for me for one hour, 15 minutes <laughs> because of divisions. Uh, the SNP holding people up in the division lobby, the sergeant-at-arms being sent into the division lobby with his sword. Because they don't like it up and, you know, trying to push them forward to get out of the division lobby. It was a tactic by the SNP to stop there being a third reading debate but they failed miserably. You
1: sound very very dramatic. dramatic.
2: (laughs) But my office, you didn't say, was about a 12, 13 minute walk from the chamber. We go along secret tunnels and God knows what else, but uh, it's quite some distance away, which is a good thing because I put weight on during lockdown. (laughs) I'm hoping I'll now lose it.
0: Yeah, so you've got we are here in your office. It it's a very interesting office. Yeah. What is your favourite thing in this office?
2: Uh, well, it, it, I've got lots of memorabilia. So, in, before I became an MP, I worked in radio. So, you've got like that little radio. Radio. It's a radio which spells out radio. And it's Radio Vest in Stavanger, which was a radio station I built in Norway. First commercial radio station in Norway. I've got Soviet. Navy hat, the Sovietsky Baltic fleet, because we did work with Radio Moscow. But I'm very pro-American, so I think one of my favorite things is the flag on the left, which is the... nobody recognizes it, in fact I've even had the U.S. ambassador in he didn't know what it was. It's the Grand Union flag, and it's the very first flag of the United States, with the 13 red and white stripes. But it's got our old Union flag in the top left hand corner instead of the stars. So it's not the current British flag, it's the flag before the red X went oh, into yeah. it when Ireland joined the United Kingdom. So, anyways, Lots yeah, yeah. So you were just talking about
1: forms. radio there. So, is it true you started. A student radio at your university. Yes, name.
2: I was involved with University Radio Loughborough, and we went to York and Warwick and loads of other places, uh, looking around. So that was fun. Uh, I'd been on pirate radio before I'd be. Oh, went wow. to I'd been on a pirate radio boat.
1: So for anyone that doesn't isn't aware quite of what pirate radio is, what kind of what did that involve? So evolve? this
2: was until although commercial television started in 1956. It wasn't until the early 1970s that we got commercial radio in the UK. So you either had the BBC or you had Radio Luxembourg, which broadcast in English with a very fading in and out signal on AM. No FM, of course, because it was too far away, because it was transmitted from Luxembourg. So basically what happened was there was a whole string of uh, pirate radio ships. So they were ships with a transmitter tower... And broadcasting from about 12 miles off the coast, on AM, so it covered most Mm. of the country. And, uh, yeah, so we had to sit on the boat, but we were were. on the high seas, (laughs) so it was legal. Amazing. Until the Labour government all made it illegal, so that's probably (laughs) what made me into a Conservative, actually.
0: Oh, that's brilliant. You've lived quite a varied and interesting life, and you're probably one of the most charismatic and... Memorable MPs. I'm buttering room. you up because I <laughs> want to yeah. talk to you about first dates. Because what was that like for you? You went on first dates, which as an MP is obviously quite an interesting thing to do anyway. But then you also came out as bisexual on first dates. What was that like?
2: Well, they wanted to pair me up with a guy, and I wasn't really interested in doing that. And uh, so I said, Look, you know, I don't want to make out that I'm. but I also don't want to make out that I'm straight. So I said, would you mind if I said I was bisexual? And uh, they went into orgasms of delight that an MP should do this. And they were looking it up and saying, you'd be the first MP to admit to being bisexual. And I said, well, if you knew the House of Commons like I knew the House of Commons, (laughs) believe me, probably the majority are. But we won't go into too much detail. And I won't be naming names. But uh, yes, it was. so I did it for charity. It was for a cancer charity. Oh, wow. They asked me the sort of woman I find attractive. Because I said I want to go with a woman mm. and uh, I didn't want people to think I'm deceiving, you know, about yeah. bisexuality. That's why I said bisexual. And uh, I told them the sort of woman I found uh, attractive, so they found me the complete opposite. <laughs> and it went from bad to worse. Actually, we were meeting to begin with in quite a sort of, uh, sort of friendly way, and I think it wasn't making good television. So there was a little break, and uh, the uh, floor manager spoke to this woman and said, go on about his hair. Oh, really? (laughs) They (laughs) kind of egged on about it. So you think
0: they were were being brutal to make good television?
2: They were trying to make good television. Hey, what do I care? (laughs) On
0: the other hand, it was a joke in PMQs, wasn't it? Theresa May mentioned it.
2: (laughs) Well, that was very embarrassing, because I had been told that under no circumstances could I advertise. I don't know why Mm. it mattered, but... Under no circumstances could I advertise that I was doing this in advance. Oh, so it was like program. a surprise. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I had told, though, a friend of mine who was the government chief whip, and he must have told the Prime Minister. <laughs> and out she came with it. And he caused utter mayhem at Channel 4. Uh, at at a a sort of fairly senior level Mm. till the chairman of Channel 4 said what the hell are you getting worried about here's the Prime Minister (laughs) sort of trailing trailing about a show which normally gets hardly any publicity at all what could be better it's fantastic going out on all channels that (laughs) I'm on this uh, first date
0: that's brilliant Uh, let's rewind a bit and talk a bit about uh, your childhood because you uh, grew up in Brighton, in a Jewish family. Were you, were you quite religious? Because your father was a rabbi.
2: Yes, he became a rabbi. He, yeah. uh, he was an academic, uh, had gone to university and studied French, German, Hebrew and Arabic. Had joined the British army during the war, joined army intelligence because of the languages, and uh, got involved in... Um, debriefing or interrogating German prisoners found out about the Holocaust. And it made him religious, more religious. I mean, I think to me, it would have made me less religious actually, thinking, you know, how could God allow yeah. such a thing? But uh, yeah, but it, it was a very sort of uh, r- relaxed household in the sense that although he was a rabbi, he was clean shaven, he was very British. Yeah. Uh, he looked a bit like Captain Mannering in Dad's Army. And <laughs> spoke like Captain Mannering at Dad's Army. And I wasn't particularly religious. I was Bar Mitzvahed when you're thirteen. You're know, Bar Mitzvah, and uh, but I really, when I was about fifteen, I met loads of friends who weren't particularly Jewish, and uh, we used to go out for Indian meals, which were unkosher. And anyways, <laughs> you know, so it
0: not very strict then.
2: They were strict at home for themselves, so mm. they would only eat kosher. But as my dad said to me, you know, as long as you don't bring the food into the house, you know, it's up to you how you want to lead your life. Yeah. He was always very good like that, actually, because when I was about 14, I picked up some cigarettes in the house and started smoking it. And if my dad had said, I forbid you to smoke, I would have ended up being a lifelong smoker. But he didn't. He said, don't take cigarettes from here. He said, because they're for guests. This is in the days when people did smoke. And he sort of gave me a pack of cigarettes and he said, if you want to get grey skin and uh, you want your breath to smell, here's cigarettes, you know. And, you know, I took another puff and I thought, hey, I don't even like this. I'm <laughs> so I've never smoked uh, cigarettes in my life. By that I mean that when I went to university and worked in radio in America, I did smoke the occasional... <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was going to ask you about that as well. Yeah. <laughs> because I saw somewhere and it made me laugh. You said you like to relax to choral music rather than smoking on a spliff, but only because choral music is legal. Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> so, or something like that. I don't remember <laughs> saying that, but yeah. don't know, it made me laugh anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds right.
0: Sounds Let's talk good. about radio, because obviously you set up and ran this international business setting up radio stations all across the world. Just what, what was that like? What did you do?
2: Well, how did it happen, first of all? What it was, So, I was working also with the BBC, and I decided I'd like to get a commercial radio licence to operate the commercial radio station in Sussex, down in the south of England. And um, we started looking at what sort of equipment we'd put in the mixing desks. And in those days, apart from pyro radio, you know, it wasn't self-op. In other words, you always had an engineer and you're behind the glass while you just talked into a microphone uh, and made funny hand signals at the engineer so you went to start playing the records. Well that was very old fashioned. So I met up with a guy who I had met at the BBC who was an engineer and we started a company to actually make some of the equipment that goes into radio stations. And it was really just intended to be for the UK but it all went absolutely mad and we set up radio stations in 48 different countries around the world I got to travel to most of them and it was great fun and they ranged from sort of developing countries like Uganda to the United States, Australia, Sweden, Norway, Iceland were big clients of mine I used to joke that in Iceland they had more studios than population. It was incredibly well equipped for radio. Iceland with only a small population?
1: Well, so, what made you then? Obviously, you had such a backing in radio. What made you then want to sort of transition into politics? Did you ever con- like well, see yourself as a broadcaster?
2: To, yeah, I mean, I wasn't. I mean, what happened was that my chairman of the company was a politician and former oh, okay. broadcaster. A guy called Sir Geoffrey Johnson Smith who used to present a television show back in the 50s and early 60s, so we're talking about a long time ago when I was, you know, barely alive. But uh, <laughs> anyways, what happened was that, um, so he got me a bit interested in politics because we'd argue about politics yeah. a bit. And in 1990, an American corporation came along and made an offer we couldn't refuse. And I was getting worried anyways because I was concerned maybe our technology would be out of date because of the introduction of digital audio. In fact, actually, the way it worked out, it wouldn't have actually been a problem. But we were also getting tired. I mean, it, to go from a brand new company to 48 stations around the world, everybody yeah. was getting exhausted. And my business partner, you know, actually had to do the engineering. I was just doing the selling uh you know it was like falling apart because we we don't didn't just manufacture the equipment we did the architecture of the radio station we put everything in we provide you know uh, audio packages we did the lot it was a, what we call a turnkey operation and I think we became the second largest company in the world doing that sort of niche mm. thing so we got this offer my business partner bought a tennis club and I <laughs> oh, no. he was into tennis.
0: So. You must have done all right from that, then, if your business partner's buying a tennis club. We did all right. And,
2: uh, <laughs> yeah, so I decided, right, I'm going to become an MP. And what I had done, because I haven't got time to be a councillor or anything mm. like that because I was abroad so much, but I decided in 1987, before I got elected, it oh, all sounds so long ago, to fight an absolutely hopeless parliamentary seat... Which I did up in South Shields because mm. it was very safe labour. Because I didn't want to get elected, mm. but we did well. We got into the press all the time. Yeah. And people were saying, "My God, you know, you've got a publicity." But then, you know, I worked in radio news, so I knew how you to. You knew how to shape it yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, yes, I got elected in 1992, and that was a shocking experience in some ways. <laughs>
0: Twenty-nine years ago, as well. Mm. It's a long time to do one job. Did you ever see yourself as a broadcaster or did you have a fancy kind of television or doing something like that on becoming... Oh, very much so, yeah. yeah.
2: So I started off as a broadcaster, as I said earlier on, on Pirate Radio, then on University Radio Loughborough. Then I got work with the BBC on Woman's Hour when they had uh, male yeah. presenters and the Today programme doing packages. And... Um, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. Uh, so I wanted to do that, but then I diverted, as I said, into yeah. doing the engineering side. Uh, but now I enjoy doing broadcasting. Yeah,
1: so obviously, 29 years now as a, a politician, um, and today. I like what the Americans
2: <laughs> say, by the way. They never say politician, because that's like a pejorative <laughs> term. They always say legislator. Legislator. Like <laughs> you prefer <speech> being <laughs> a, legislator. a legislator. 29
1: years as a legislator. But obviously this week has been, there's been a lot in the news. Um, today, a prime minister's questions uh, was quite a anticipated one. You were there. What was it like today oh, well, I mean, in the, the House mood of Commons? Oh, was incredible.
2: I mean, you know, you had Labour shouting, Conservatives shouting. And what the speaker doesn't realise, because he's often telling us all to be quiet... Because he can't hear what's going on. Yeah. But of course, the mics are directional mics. So actually, at home, you can uh-huh. hear what's yeah, going yeah. on. In fact, Lindsay's a great pal of mine, so I might have to say to him, look, you know, you might not be able to hear, but actually, we can at <laughs> home. Everyone else can. You know? yeah. But yeah, so it was very interesting. I thought, you know, for what it's worth, I thought actually Boris did the right thing by making a statement mm. beforehand and apologising yep. or whatever. Though he still maintains there wasn't a party. So we shall see. I'm gonna
0: hop in here because obviously this is podcast and this is recorded. We're talking on the eighth of December at half past four, which um and Allegra Stratton's just resigned over this video that's come out about um the party and joking about it. But yeah, do you think do you think he's right to maintain there was no party? And it
2: depends. If there was no party, he's right to maintain it. If there was a party, it's a very. It's quite clear thing. now, isn't it, that there
0: was a party. I
2: have no idea. I mean, I wasn't there, so I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he says not. No prime minister, no minister of the crown, can deliberately lie in the yeah. House of Commons chamber. Yeah. And he was pretty clear that there was no party. But I suppose well, how do you define a party? Exactly. Like brought out some drinks now. After this. Well, they said wine and cheese,
0: didn't they? Mm. For in a business meeting.
2: You know. Yeah, yeah, so is that a party? It's hard. I I mean, I used to be in the Treasury many, many years ago with Ken Clark, and we would have a a lunchtime meeting, and there would be wine and stuff from Pret a Manger. Mm. And, you know, was it a party? No, hardly. It was actually a meeting, but we were eating and drinking at the same time.
0: What's the mood like on the backbenches now? We've had the Sleaze stuff and the Owen Patterson stuff, and just as that's dying down, this stuff about the parties come up. Are people fed up?
2: I think they are fed up, simply because, you know, there's such good news going on. I mean, Britain has the most advanced vaccine programme in the world. Uh, you know, he said we were going to leave the EU, What's happened? We have left the EU. So all these major things are going well. There are other initiatives. It's going a bit slowly on dealing with immigration, more slowly than we'd like, but, you know, we've just had the third reading. I've just voted the second before we started this interview. Well, a few seconds, because I had to walk across from the chamber to here. But we just voted on the nationality bill, which is going to address most of that. So, you know, lots are going on, but it's all been drowned out by, um, you know, these issues. And, you know, uh, Keir Starmer, who's upped his game, he's brought in some fresh people and he's performing a lot better, Mm. you (laughs) know, than he was doing because he couldn't land uh, a punch at all before.
1: Yeah. Do you think then that people are losing trust in Boris and maybe more support is going towards Keir Starmer then?
2: Well, the polling at the moment is, you know, going that way. But you know what? We're mid-term. He should be ten points ahead. Yeah. Uh, so one small poll had him two points ahead. Another poll had us two points ahead of you know. They're not, and without Scotland, of course, they're very unlikely yeah. to. So actually. you're not
0: too worried at the moment,
2: at least. Well, I'm a bit of a Boris supporter. I didn't back him actually for the leadership originally. Oh really? Yeah. But uh, I just think the guy's got great vision, and he's very different in many ways, and, you know, Labour people would laugh, but he is very different from most prime ministers because most prime ministers are just interested in itty-bitty gritty detail and to manage everything. He's an ideas guy, and, you know, prime ministers should be the ideas guy. It's for the rest of the cabinet and the civil servants to actually yeah. implement the detail. Yeah.
0: Uh, Has Boris got a bit of a problem, though? Because if people in the country don't trust him and they think that he's telling lies, whether he is or he isn't is a different question. And this new variant surging and there's the possibility new restrictions are going to be needed. Are people going to trust him? Are people going to bother to follow those restrictions? Well, I mean,
2: it is difficult You ask a very valid question now, but whether that be the same in two weeks' time, who knows, you know? People are, you know, the news agenda constantly changes. Uh, It's been going on about this party for a while, but, um, you know, he still maintains, as I said just now, that there wasn't a party. Also, you know, the Omicron variant is very interesting uh, in the sense that, you know, it is much, much more um, transmissible than any previous thing. That's the bad news. Uh, It partly escapes the vaccine, so you can catch it. But the vaccine works well at actually stopping hard effects. So that's even. But here's the question. Here's the question. And we don't know enough about it yet. Generally speaking, coronaviruses attenuate over time. And there are lots of different coronaviruses. The common cold is usually caused by a a coronavirus Now this particular one, COVID-19, the Omicron variant, some people believe it is actually very attenuated and won't send you to hospital. Now, if, big if, if that's the case, and they were saying that in South Africa, but they've got a much younger population, but if that, although actually South Africa is not as vaccinated as the UK, if that's the case and it replaces Delta and the old, do you remember the beta variant? That was yeah. the Kent variant. Yeah. So if it replaces it and it's become quite a weak thing just giving you a sniffle and a cough.
0: That could be a good thing. That's good news. Yeah. That
2: will, well, if that's the case, it's not that could be a good thing. True. If that's yeah. the case, it would be a good thing. Yeah. That would be the end the beginning of the end of the pandemic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's very early. Yeah, you, too early to tell.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Do you think people are quite negative about coronavirus? Because you make a good point there. But I've not heard anyone else say that. I mean, you've heard, like, kind of discussions, but not, not anywhere near as much as the kind of, we might need another lockdown, it's very much more transmissible, Christmas is going to be cancelled kind of thing.
2: Well... <laughs> You know, the problem is it takes 14 to 21 days to develop really severe COVID if you're mm. going to get it. It's only just started in this country. Yeah. We know it's expanding. The cabinet is divided, which is, you know, will always be the case in all cabinets because mm. you have an argument. Some people say, yeah, we'd better be safe than sorry. Others are saying, well, look, it could be good news. Let's just wait and see.
0: Mm. Can I talk to you about Twitter? Because you're quite a big tweeter. Do you like it? Do you enjoy yeah,
2: it? I do like Twitter. Um, I know it's not got the audience of Facebook, you know, for example. But I put things on Facebook in a more sort of formal way, you know, when I do my news releases and that sort of thing. But I like Twitter for two reasons. One is I've got a Twittery mind. I mean, I'm constantly zipping from <laughs> yeah. one thing to another. So when I get an idea, I'll tweet it. It's also very good because it works for me and that journalists read my Twitter mm. feed. And sometimes, I mean, I tweeted something this morning and I've had several journalists phone me up about it yeah. saying, would I go on radio or television and talk about it? Which was to do with the party. So I didn't want to, yeah. not the political party, but the, the part yeah. number 10 party, which may or may not have taken place. Mm. And um, yeah, it's, uh, I like Twitter.
0: You get in a bit of trouble on it if we're being honest, don't
2: you? I do.
0: I've got some of your tweets here. My personal favourite is when you called someone a complete twat.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) uh, and then they they decided to take offence. This person was an idiot, uh, even a bigger (laughs) idiot than I thought. First of all, I didn't know the sex of the person because the name didn't actually signify whether it was male or female. And it was so ignorant because they tweeted that we'd done really badly in the local elections, so if you right, and we hadn't actually had any local elections in Litchfield. So I assumed that the person wasn't from the area. In fact, this person was so dumb, she was from the area, and hadn't realised there hadn't been local elections. And I called her, as it turned out to be a her, a complete twat. Then she decided that that was, uh, you know, a, an obscene word which i keep hearing on the radio radio four even Mm. so you know it's it's uh, sometimes it's engineered Mm. other times people say no come on that was a bit off when it has been a bit Mm. off Mm.
0: is it a bit of a double-edged sword twitter then for you do you find yeah okay um we'll move on to a bit about your parliamentary career uh you've been a Backbencher most of your time, haven't,
2: oh, haven't you? Well, that's partly because we were in opposition. Yeah. So I in I, I was a PPS in the Treasury under Ken Clark when we were in government with John Major. Then for thirteen years we were out, so I couldn't be a government minister anyway because we were out of office. Then I became, but I was a, a, an opposition trade minister. Then I went into the Whip's Office, because there you can actually do something in opposition, rather than just talking about doing something. And I stayed in the government Whip's Office for a couple of years, but then I had real problems in my constituency with HS2, which Mm. I think is very badly designed. The original plan was for HS2, for example, to go into Birmingham New Street or Manchester Piccadilly. you get on the train, and you'd go direct to Paris, or, Amst- or, B- or Brussels, or wherever. Uh, Labour changed the plan, and the Conservative government under David Cameron, stupidly, in my opinion, stuck to the Labour plan, which meant it goes to separate railway stations apart from Euston. Mm. But to give you an example, so under the old system, which got changed, if somebody from Litchfield wanted to go to Paris to visit Disneyland with their kids. They would take what's called the Cross City Line to Birmingham New Street, change platforms, and then they'd be in Paris. Yeah. Now, they would have to go to Birmingham New Street, walk with their kids and all their bags to a standalone railway station. Then they would end up in Euston Station, then they would have to walk across from Euston Station to Paddington Station. This is no way to run a railway. It's about as joined up as my old Hornby train.
0: <laughs> Izzy, you live on the HS HS2 line as well, don't you? I
1: do, back home, and it's, uh, it's definitely quite a big issue where I'm from, down in Warwickshire.
2: Um, oh, well, I was just talking just now, actually, to uh, Jeremy... Uh, I've his surname, but so i just call him Jeremy. Uh, the uh, MP for warwickshire oh, yeah, town has got yeah. big problems, Jeremy Wright.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's been quite um, a divisive yeah, issue it's there divisive as well. Yeah, divisive in because
2: it's crashing through beautiful countryside. This is the issue that a lot of people, yeah. Destroying lovely old ancient woods, and I'm a member of the Woodland Trust, so it really does irritate
0: me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did you, would you ever... Yeah, yeah, we'll wrap up then very quickly. Some quick fire questions, right. if that's <laughs> all right. Do you want to go? I'm
2: sorry, uh, no, question. no, it's all right. Worry. We, we know you've
1: got a meeting. This is just to finish off, so uh, Litchfield or Westminster? Oh, Lichfield. <laughs> In, In fact, when we had
2: lockdown, I really enjoyed working from Lichfield for 18 months, however long it was, instead of coming down here.
0: Boris or Rishi?
2: Oh, Boris.
0: Downing Street party or a nice quiet Christmas?
2: Can't I choose one in the middle? <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, Christmas in Litchfield or Wales. Is yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and finally, we ask everyone this. Do you want pineapple on your pizza or not?
2: No. Absolutely um, not. <laughs> I thank like, you. I like chorizo... And uh, I yeah. add Tabasco sauce to make it fiery. Like so. And uh, definitely not pineapple.
0: Very exotic. <laughs> I yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Michael Fabrican. I am thank you very much for joining us. We'll let you go off to your meeting now. But yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> I enjoyed
2: it.